Good evening. If you would, get out your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Zechariah. So you go to Matthew and you go back to, and you're there. Zechariah. Tonight, I'd like for us to study a book uh, that has been scary to me. Uh, This is a scary book because it resembles Revelation. And I am not uh, one who feels like Revelation is something that should be taken lightly or that it's something that should be just flippantly looked at as though it's easy to understand. Uh, And I would say that Zechariah is kind of the same way. Uh, In in Zechariah, like Revelation, we have a number of visions that are mentioned. Uh, And and those visions are, uh, they can kind of throw us off as we look at them. And and we can come up with a lot of different interpretations for the visions if if some overall basis is not understood. But as we study together tonight, I hope that uh, you feel a little bit easier about looking at visions. And I hope that I kind of help you understand maybe another method of looking at visions and and understanding books like this uh, that, that will help you in your studies. Uh, one thing that I've noticed and that we're going to do tonight as we study together is that these books need to be understood in their original context. And that's, that, to me, is one of the most foundational things that we can do. But also that these books, whenever we see the visions, we need to look at them from a bigger perspective. And I think that's what we're, that's what we're doing in all of these overview sermons. We're just kind of taking a big picture look at what's being said here. And that's going to help us because when we get down into the details, if we don't really understand what's going on in the big picture, then those details can really hang us up. Uh, So I'm hoping that uh, this evening as we study together that I can work through uh, some of these um, struggles that we have with looking at language like this. So tonight we're going to look at this book. So let's start by thinking about the context. We've been studying through books of this same time period, a time when uh, those who were Israel, Israelites have gone through the Babylonian captivity. They've, they've been punished for their sins and brought out of the captivity after 70 years of being taken into captive. And upon their return, we read in the book of Ezra that they began to build the temple. Uh, under the leadership of Zerubbabel and under the leadership of Jeshua, or Joshua, as he's called in this book. Uh, and, and so they start building, and if you remember that study in Ezra, maybe about a month ago, uh, they began to build, but then after they laid the foundation, there was weeping and mourning, and then they stopped building for about 20 years. And after that period of 20 years, we get into the book of Ezra, and we find in chapter uh, 6 that that... God sends prophets uh, to the people during the reign of Darius. He sends Haggai, and we looked at him first a a long time ago, and he sends Zechariah. They're called out there in the book of Ezra. These prophets were intended to encourage the people, to build them up, to strengthen them, to do the work, to, to build the temple. You remember in Haggai, they were off building their own houses and making them luxurious because they were, they were scared to build the temple of the Lord. All the nations around them were oppressing them and stopping them, uh, they thought, from building the temple. And, and so they just gave up on 
on that, and they were busy building their own houses. And God tells them, no, you need to build my house. My house. Uh, and he says, I'm with you. And he says, I'm going to shake the nations, and I'm going to pour out all the blessings on this house. It seems like nothing right now, but I'm going to send, I'm going I'm to make it more than what you're seeing over time, and I'm going to pour out great blessings. And he makes all these promises to the people. And he says, even though you're still defiled, you're still unclean, I'm going to pour out blessings on you uh, and, and give you the, ble- the blessing so that you know that I'm with you and you feel encouraged to build the temple. It's a great, a great encouraging letter. Well, guess what? Zechariah's the same kind of message. Zechariah is a message of hope, a message of encouragement to these exiles uh, who are now returned to the land but still suffering and still dealing with a lot of trouble as the nations around them are, are being evil toward them. And so Zechariah is a prophet of the Lord who writes more. we got 14 chapters in the book of Zechariah. Uh, but he's writing the same kind of message, a message of hope, a message of encouragement, building up the people of the Lord to build the temple and to have faith in the God that they serve, that he will deliver the promises that he has made to them. To give you kind of a 10,000-foot picture of the whole book, and what, how it's organized and everything, uh, what we see is that the first six chapters are basically all eight of the visions. There's kind of an introduction at the beginning, and there's a conclusion at the end, but there's in between, there's eight visions that are laid out. And we see a progression through those visions. It seems as though God is telling us a story through the visions. In fact, there's not a distinction in time between the visions that these things occur, but it seems like these are all happening one right after another for Zechariah to understand a series of events that are happening, and and he pictures them for everyone to see through visions. So as we study these visions, hopefully we're going to see the connection throughout and the story as it progresses uh, of what these visions are really about and how they build up and encourage the people. And then in chapters 7 and 8, we see a sermon given by Zechariah that is an overview. It's kind of an understanding about obedience. The people are struggling to understand what obedience is. And then he gives oracles, and oracles are foretellings. They're talking about the future. And he's telling them about the great shepherd that is to come in the first oracle of chapters 9 through 11. And then he tells them about the salvation of Jerusalem that is to come in chapters 12 through 14. So from a big picture perspective, we can see these kind of breakups. At the beginning of chapter 9, he says the oracle. At the beginning of chapter 12, he says the oracle. Uh, and, and 7 through 8 have a connection as well that, that this is the way the book is structured. This is the way the book is broken up. Now let's understand the details of all of this message. Let's start out reading the first six verses of chapter 1. It says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, 
As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has He dealt with us. This first six verses are kind of confusing. Who's the they and that's going on between them? But if we were to summarize, essentially God is pleading with the people to return to me. He says, return to me. If you'll return to me, I will return to you. We saw this in Malachi. And they said, how do we return to you in Malachi? But here, notice, He says, return to me, I'll return to you. And then He says, remember your fathers, the prophets I sent them out to your fathers and I told them to repent and they didn't listen. They, they held on to their evil ways and they, they didn't pay attention. And look at what happened to your fathers. But notice what happened to the prophets. That, that the word that they spoke, even though the prophets are dead, the word that they spoke endured and it came to pass. Everything that God has said has happened. And at the very end, it says, so they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. They come to this final conclusion at the end that, yeah, God is faithful. God has delivered everything that he has promised. He has steadfastly uh, loved his people and dealt with them just as he said he would deal with them. And they repent of their sins and they recognize the faithfulness of God and they desire to serve God. They're returning to the Lord. And this is the basis for everything that's in this book. The picture is the people have heard this word and now they're desiring to repent. They're desiring to return to the Lord. And guess what? This book is about the Lord returning to them and what this looks like. That he has said, return to me and I will return to you. The beginning starts. They are returning to the Lord. And the rest of the book is about how he will return to them. Okay, so that's from a big picture. Everything that we're going to be looking at is revealing to us about how God has decided He's going to return to His people. He's going to help them. Okay, so that helps us with these eight visions to understand what's going on throughout them. At the beginning, uh, the first vision in chapter 1, verse 7 through 17, we see a man riding on a red horse coming up. And the man comes up and he's, and he's asked, you know, where have you been? I've been patrolling the earth and going and, and, and seeing everything that's done on it. And then uh, God, or the angel asks him, what do you see? What's, it, what's going on? And he says that the earth is at rest. And we might think, oh, well, that's a good thing. The earth is at rest. That's how it should be, right? But actually, it's not. That's not a good thing. Um, and we see that. After, uh, in verse 12, the angel of the Lord says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Notice, the, the angel comes forward and says, the earth's at rest. And then another angel says, well, Lord, how long are you not going to have mercy on your people? The, the earth being at rest was not a good thing because God's people had not been fully restored yet. Why is there peace on the earth? There should be action. There should be judgment against the enemies of the Lord. Lord, you're supposed to do something. How long will you go before you, you give mercy? It's been 70 years, he says. And that's 70 years since the destruction of the temple. 70 years from the deportation, the people returned. It's been 70 years since the temple was destroyed. How long? Will you go on? And the Lord says, gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with him. He says in verse 14, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. 
Uh, and, and I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry a little, they furthered the disaster. In verse 16, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. The ho- my house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall stretch out over Jerusalem. You see, he's going to come, he's going to judge the nations, he's going to take back his people, and he's going to build his house. He's going to build this temple that's been laid destroyed, and he says, a measuring line I'm going to stretch out over Jerusalem. Now, if you know prophecy at all, you know measuring lines can be a bad thing, uh, measuring for judgment, but in this case, it seems like it's a good thing. He's measuring Jerusalem for a good thing, and we're going to see that that's actually the case as we continue and, and as we get to the third vision. In the second vision, It's kind of a shorter vision. We see uh, Zechariah lifting up his eyes and beholding four horns. And these four horns are the nations that have scattered Judah and that have caused them to hang their their head low. Okay, So these are bad nations that have come up against Jerusalem and God's people and, and been oppressing them. And God says he's sending out, the Lord showed me in verse 20, four craftsmen, and I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head, and and these, the craftsmen, have come to terrify them and to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter. Here we see God lifting up four craftsmen to defeat the enemies who have oppressed God's people. He's, he's fixing the situation laid out in vision one, that the people are not fully restored yet and, and the nations are at ease when they shouldn't be. By sending out these four craftsmen, he's dealing with the problem just as he promises. And then we get to the third vision in, in chapter two. And in this vision, a man comes with a measure, a measuring line to Jerusalem. And, and he's measuring it to see what is its length. And then verse four Uh, It said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. What he's saying here is the man is measuring Jerusalem for expansion. That's what's going on. There's going to be a number of people coming in. There's going to be a number of livestock. So here's the blessing that God is going to destroy and judge the enemies in vision two and that he is going to measure Jerusalem and prepare for the great expansion in vision three. And and it says uh, in verse eight, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Verse nine, behold, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, and behold, I come and I I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And, And verse 11, and I will dwell in your midst. Notice that phrase again and again popping up. That sounds a lot like what we studied this morning in Matthew. God's saying, I'm going to come and dwell in your midst. And there's going to be all these blessings that are going to be poured out, and God is going to, going to help his people. And at the end, be silent, verse 13, all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. God is coming to bless his, his people in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and that's essentially the core message that's coming through this, that he's responding to the, the fact that all the nations are at rest by bringing about this great help and restoration for his people. And this continues in, in chapter 3 um, with the fourth vision. 
that he will clean the high priest. Uh, Joshua. Joshua comes standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan starts to accuse him. And God says, he's, he's a brand that I've pulled out of the fire of judgment, okay? And, and God decides to be merciful to the high priest. He says, let's put clean clothes on him. He's got filthy garments. He's accused. He's guilty. And God says, let's put clean clothes on him. And so they start to put clean clothes on him. And then Zechariah, I think, is the guy that stands up and says, and put a clean turban on his head. <laughs> and they put a clean turban on his head. The, the high priest is made clean. The high priest has to be made clean in order to offer atonement for the sins. And that's what he's doing. He's helping the people to be having a relationship with the Lord again. In verse 6, the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you will rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. The promise is, you will once again be my high priest. Uh, and that's what he makes the promise to Joshua. In verse 8, he says something else. It's very interesting. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. In verse 9, he says, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That branch idea is going to be important for later. And the iniquity being removed in a day is an important idea as well. He's kind of foretelling these events, these things that he's going to do in the future at this point. But the vision's main point is the high priest is going to be cleaned. And the next vision kind of goes along with it. Not only is God going to restore the high priest, but he's also going to restore the kingly figure in Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, you remember, is the signet ring. According, He's been given the signet ring according to Haggai. He's a descendant of David that eventually leads to the Christ. Uh, he's in both of the genealogies. But in this, in this text, we see a vision that really kind of throws us off. This is kind of a tough one, okay? I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Uh, you've got a lampstand with seven lamps on it and a bowl on top of the lamps, okay? And then you've got two olive trees on either side. Now, olive trees provide the olive oil that lights the lamps and keeps the, the lamps flowing. So the olive trees are the source of the light that is burning uh, for the olive trees. And we can kind of grasp that understanding. I mean, if you were a Jew, you would have easily saw that because they had lampstands in, in the, the holy place. They had lampstands uh, that were representative of things in, in the Old Testament. We don't have time to get into those details. But there's this picture of a lampstand, a bowl, and two olive trees. And... and Zechariah is even like, what's this about? You know, the, the, the angel asked him, do you know what these are? He says, I don't know what the, these are in verse 5. And then verse 6, this is what the angel says about all this. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace to it. Okay. What is that about? What is he saying here? Well, the word of the Lord, this, the, the whole picture is essentially trying to say that the, this, is, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. That, that God is the source. God is providing what is needed to light the fire, to get Jerusalem going again. And, and he is the one who's going to make it possible for this temple to be built. They don't feel like it can be built, but he says it's going to happen. And not only is it going to happen, you, Zerubbabel, who started this 20 years ago, you're going to lay the top, the capstone 
on this temple. He's going to make it happen through Zerubbabel. Uh, in the latter part of this, he talks about the olive trees, and we don't have time to go into that, but it could be Zechariah and Haggai are the two olive trees. It could be Moses, Elijah. It could be a lot of things. I don't know. Uh, but, but there's a lot of details here that, that are struggle. But can you see the big picture? God cleanses the high priest so he can serve, and he, he helps and strengthens the kingly figure so he can build the temple. Uh, and that, that seems like everything from the first vision has just been going on an upward trend and everything's great. But then the sixth vision comes. And Zechariah lifts his eyes and what does he see? He sees a flying scroll. It's this huge scroll flying over the land. And verse 3, he said to me, This is the curse that goes over the face of the whole land. The curse. The, the idea of all the Old Testament is we have fallen under this curse and it's going out over the whole land. So all these problems have not been fixed. Yeah, we're up here and things have been restored, but now he gives us a picture, but everything's not fixed yet. And there's a curse going out among the whole land and, and everyone's cursed again. And it's sad, but then we get to the next vision, the seventh vision. And this one's funny. You've got uh, Zechariah looking up again, and he says, what do you see? I see a basket. Oh, okay, a basket, all right. Well, and then they lift up the lid of the basket, and there's a woman inside. Okay. Uh, and they say, this is wickedness. And then they close this leaden, this leaden lid on top to cover up and to keep wickedness in the basket. And then two women with, with wings come and they take the basket away to the east. So they're carrying iniquity away from the land in a day, essentially, which was kind of talked about before. So here we see that happening. After the scroll comes by and delivers this curse, we see something happening to take away the wickedness that was in the land, uh, and, and the problem is ultimately solved. And finally, at the end, we see the last vision. We see four uh, chariots come out from between two mountains, and there's these horses and horsemen on these chariots again, and they're going to go out and patrol the land, and guess what they're going to do? They're going to set God's Spirit at rest, is what he says in, in, in verse 8. He, they set God's Spirit at rest. At the beginning, the land was at rest when it shouldn't be. But now, as they go out to patrol the earth, after the iniquity of the land has been carried away, God's Spirit has been set at rest. Do we see the progression of the story throughout all of these visions? What a beautiful picture this is of what God is going to do. You return to me. Listen to what I'm going to do for you in all of these visions. Okay? Not that hard if we look at them from the big picture. You read through this, it's tough. There's details here that I'm leaving out because we don't have time to discuss them. But from a big picture, we can see the progression of the story in all of these visions. And the conclusion is kind of the climax of all of it. It kind of explains all of these things that he's been saying. Um, because he talks about, uh, he tells Zechariah, you go to these men, you ask them for silver and gold, and you make a crown. And then you take that crown and you place it on the high priest. And this is what he says in, verse, uh, in chapter 6, verse 12. Behold, the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace 
shall be between them both. Okay, so you've got a high priest who is made a king in this vision, and he's called the branch. Oh, okay. Well, that's uh, <laughs> this is sounding very New Testament. High priest and king. That sounds that sounds a lot like Jesus. In verse fifteen. Those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. He builds the temple, and those who are far off come and help him. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So the picture of a a priest and king building the temple and and helping the people is, is what he wraps up all these visions as. Pretty cool stuff. Okay, I love this. I mean, I'm just, I'm eating it up. This is fun stuff to me. All right, we get to chapter 7 and 8, though, and we see a sermon. This one's a little bit easier. We get past the visions. It becomes a little bit easier in this sermon because the people come to Zechariah, and they're asking him, um, what, what about the fast that we've been doing? I mean, 70 years, we've been in captivity. We've been fasting and abstaining from all kinds of things. And, and all these days of the year, we've set aside for fasting. And, and should we keep doing that, you know, now that you've come and told us all of this? And God asks them, well, why have you been fasting? Uh, who, who have you been fasting for this whole time? Uh, it's kind of funny. As, as he, as he asks this, he's like, when, when you fast, and you're not, you're not fasting for me. You've been fasting for yourself. Your fasting is really just about self-righteousness and, and showing yourself to be religiously good and righteous uh, and, and pure. And it's not really about serving me. Your fasting is much like uh, I, I foretold in Isaiah 58, 3 through 12. It's a fasting that's not joined with a desire to be righteous, a desire to truly love your neighbor as yourself. That's where he gets to in Isaiah 58. Well, guess what? In this text, he says the same idea. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, verse 8, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. He says the same thing in verse 16 of chapter 8. These these are the things you shall do. Speak the truth with one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. You see, they're, they're acting righteous. They're acting like they love the Lord by fasting. But at the same time, they're being wicked and doing what they want to do and harming their brother and not showing love to their brother. And so God says, you're not fasting for yourself. or You're not fasting for me. You're fasting for yourself to make yourself feel better about, about your sins <laughs> that you've done. And I would much rather you just stop doing all the sins and, and actually serve me and be faithful to me than, than to keep on fasting. And he, he says, he makes these promises to them. Uh, notice this in chapter 8, verse 3. I have the wrong thing on the PowerPoint. Chapter 8, verse 3. Uh, I, Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and would dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, The holy mountain. This is a promise that he makes to his people. I'm coming, I'm going to dwell with you, and and you're going to be called the faithful city. 
It's not going to be about fasting and, and taking advantage of your brother and doing whatever you want to do. You're actually going to be faithful to me. That's what's coming. That's what I will do for you. And he goes on to say uh, that he will bless his people. He says, verse 11 of chapter 8, But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as the former days, declares the Lord of hosts, for there shall be a sowing of peace. The vines shall give its fruit, the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword and cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. Same message as Haggai in this text. That even though you're doing evil and you're not loving your brother and you're, you're, you're sinning and you're defiling yourself in all these different ways, I still am going to bless you. And as a result, because I'm blessing you, this is what I want you to do. I want you to love truth and peace. Look at verse, uh, the end of verse 19. Therefore, love truth and peace. And he wants them, to, wants them to take all of the fasts that they were doing in the past, and instead of fasting, because he's blessing them so much, I want you to feast. I want you to enjoy all these blessings that I'm giving to you, and I want you to remember that the Lord is the one who's doing this, and I want you to love each other as I am loving you. And I want you to love truth and peace. And then people in the surrounding nations are going to come to you and they're going to be desiring to go with you to entreat the favor of the Lord and to serve and worship the God that you, that you serve. And that's the way he kind of ends this sermon. Okay? All right, then we get to some oracles. All right, he tells them all of this about the way that they worship. They need to be sure that they're, they're worshiping with the right motivation, the right heart. And then he tells them a couple of oracles. Remember, the first oracle is about the great shepherd that will come. Okay, oracles are a word of the Lord that's in the future that's going to take place. Chapter 9 starts out uh, promising to, to judge nations that are evil, and some of those nations will become a part of Israel. They too will be a remnant for God, verse 7. And then chapter 9, he sa- or chapter 9, verse 9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He starts to, to give them a picture of their king who is coming, uh, that is going to help them and restore them and save them. He is the great uh, king who will, who will secure for them the land and the promises that, that God is making. And verse 16, on that day that the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his hand for how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. The picture is the king is going to come. He's going to bless the people and provide for them all the things that they need. And then verse 3 begins kind of a transition. As he talks about this great shepherd who's coming to bless the people, he says in verse 3, My anger is hot against the shepherds 
and I will punish the leaders. This is a, a, a phrase that's going to be important in chapter 11. But he's, he's kind of pointing out, as this good shepherd comes in, he's got to address a serious problem among his people. There are bad shepherds. And, and Ezekiel pointed this out too, that there's bad shepherds. But then he says the other half of verse 3, For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. Here God promises to judge the evil shepherd, but then he also goes back and he says, I'm going to come because I care for my flock, and I'm going to strengthen you, and I'm going to make you mighty, and I'm going to make you glad so that you're able to go out and conquer the enemy for yourself. Okay, And that's a lot of chapter 10 is going back to that, that idea that he's going to strengthen them and then they're going to be glad and then they're going to come out and they're going to remember the Lord as they're out fighting and they're going to fight against those who are against them. Alright, chapter 11 kind of shifts you know, in this oracle. He's talked about how he's going to judge the shepherds. Now in chapter 11 he goes into more detail about that. The shepherd king is coming at the first part of the oracle. He's going to strengthen the people and give them might. And then he, he talks about these bad shepherds. And he tells them the, the sound of the wail of the shepherds is going to happen. For their glory is ruined, verse 3. The sound of the roar of lions for the thicket of Joran is ruined. He's going to judge those shepherds. And now what he does is he gives an image for them to see by Zechariah acting out. Okay? Ezekiel had all of these acts that he would do in his prophecy, and you see those. But Zechariah is told, I want you to be a shepherd. So Zechariah gets his staffs. He's got a staff named Favor and a staff named Union, and he's going to be the shepherd of the sheep. So he goes out to be the shepherd of the sheep, uh, and, and it turns out these are, these are sheep who uh, are doomed for slaughter by the sheep traders. Okay? These shepherds are horrible shepherds and they're about to destroy all the sheep. And so he takes his staff and he goes out there and in one month he destroys the three shepherds. Now what does Zechariah actually do? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if he actually kills some people or what happens here. But he's supposed to go out and destroy the shepherds. And, and then it says in verse 8, But I became impatient with them and they also detested me. So he's this shepherd that goes out with a staff of favor and union and he gets rid of the bad shepherds and they detest him. The sheep detest him. The sheep don't want anything to do with him. They're not listening to him. And so look at what he does in response in verse 9. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and broke it annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was, from, it was the work of the Lord. So here we see that he is removing the bad shepherds, and then he is judging the sheep who were evil and, and, and letting them destroy themselves in this image. It's very interesting uh, how he does that. And then eventually he, he asks for his wages, and his wages are 30 pieces of silver that, he's, that he takes and throws into the temple, which 
is exactly what Judas does. So very interesting thing going on there. Uh, and he judges the shepherds at the end as well. All right. So that's that oracle. It's all about this great shepherd that will come, that will remove the bad shepherds and save the, the, the good sheep, but remove also the bad sheep. Uh, now let's talk about this final oracle. If you've ever heard anybody talk about Zechariah uh, and try to, to bring up their point of view about uh, you know, anything, they're probably going to these last chapters to make their points. Um, in chapters 12 through 14, we see a number of things that sound a lot like some things in history, and so people take those details and they try to make application to, to events that have happened and, and maybe even try to make applications to events that happen today and say, see, this is going to happen in the future or this is happening now and that's going to happen in the future. But instead of looking at it that way, let's understand why this would be meaningful for the people who lived at that time. Why would they love to hear these words as they're being spoken to them? How would that encourage them and strengthen them? This oracle is divided up really into three sections, kind of like the last was divided up into two sections. But this oracle is divided up into three sections that's, that, that reveals to us the salvation of Jerusalem. Uh, at the very beginning, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. Now, there's a siege going on, right? Well... Let's not jump to conclusions about which siege and all that kind of stuff. But just notice the picture. See the picture with me. What happens to the people who try to come up against Jerusalem in this day? It's a cup of staggering. As they go to drink of that cup, it messes with them. It hurts them. As they go to lift the stone, it hurts them instead of them hurting it. Jerusalem is, has got this force field around it that is protecting them. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it, it says at the end of verse 3. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. He says, I'm going to come in and I'm going to make Jerusalem a source of pain for the enemies. And then I'm going to save my people. And whenever I save my people, I'm going to lift them up and I'm going to make them see that I'm with them. Verse 5, the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem has strength through the Lord of hosts their God. And then he is going to make Judah a blazing pot in the midst of wood like flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and the left. You see God's people fighting and winning and destroying all their enemies. And then verse 7, and the Lord shall give salvation to the tents of Judah first, and the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. Verse 8, on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. The angel of the Lord going before them is 
in the conquest. You remember Joshua sees the angel of the Lord. He's going to go before them. He's going to conquer their enemies for them. He's saying now, I'm making my people like David. I'm making my people like God. I'm making my people like the angel of the Lord that goes out and conquers. The salvation includes the people going out and conquering their enemies who are before them. Now look at verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. There's weeping that's going on because they're looking on him whom they have pierced. And, and through that, he has poured out a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy through the piercing of this one whom they have pierced. And then everyone turns their, their hearts and they mourn for what they've done. Hmm, wonder what that is. <laughs> As we see all this story unfolding, you, you see all these physical things happening, all these pictures of this siege, and then the people becoming these great warriors. And then you see in the midst of it, them changed and becoming like David and becoming like God. And all this is a picture for us to understand exactly what God is doing when He pours out His grace in the New Testament. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. That's what it's all about. Going back to those visions of removing the iniquity in a day. That's exactly what's going on here in, in this work that God is doing to destroy the enemies of His people and make them strong to go out and defeat their enemies. All right. The next section of this uh, oracle is the, the rest of chapter 13, where he starts to describe God's people a little bit more. He's described them as being mighty and, and going out and defeating their enemies. But notice verse 2, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, so that they shall remember them no more. And I will also remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. God is, is going to change the people to remove their idolatry, to remove all those prophes prophesying and, and teaching, all these things that are being taught, all the uncleanness. He's going to remove all of that stuff. And those who are, uh, who are prophesying are going to find great persecution and suffering uh, instead of having gain for the work that they're doing. And then he says in verse 7, Strike the sheep, and the sheep will be scattered. And then he says, I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. So now there's a killing of his own people that's going on. Well, what in the world? <laughs> why, is that, why is that happening? That doesn't make sense. Why would he do this to his own people? Well, uh, his people are being persecuted, and now they're being killed. But then, notice what happens. I will put this third, this one-third that remains, I will refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. Yeah, God's going to wipe out a lot of His people. Wipe out those sheep that despise Him. Wipe out those who rebel against Him. But there are going to be some who will, who will endure and who will be refined and they will become His people. 
okay? The last section, chapter 14 of this oracle, is saying the same as the first section in my understanding of it, and you'll kind of see that, and hopefully you'll, you'll agree with me. If, if you don't agree with any of these things that I'm saying in my understanding of all this, talk to me about that. I'm not perfectly in my understanding. It may change over time, but I'm, I'm pretty well convinced this is the way it is right now, and I'm trying to help you uh, with your understanding. In chapter 14, we see once again a siege coming against God's people. Verse 1, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So he says, there's coming a day when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. Now it could be that all the, all the stuff's been taken from you, you're going to receive back. They're going to divide it up and give it back to you. Or it could be you're sitting there and you're, you're about to be taken into captive. Half of you have been taken into captive and they're dividing up your property among themselves at, at the point of what's about to happen. I think that's probably the case. Half of the city has gone into exile. The rest of the people, though, he says, shall not be cut off from the city. Verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations when he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. You've got this terrifying vision of God's people being suffering and persecuted. And, and the nations are right, raging against them. And God comes in and he sets his feet on Mount Olives and then there's this big earthquake. And there's this big split that happens. And, and that's terrifying. It would be terrifying. It's during the days of Isaiah, there was this huge earthquake that terrified the people. And verse 8, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Notice, God shakes the earth and he opens up these living waters for the earth to take, for those who are his people to take. And those living waters sound a whole lot like the fountain that was mentioned back in chapter 13, verse 1 to me. It sounds a lot like that. Uh, same kind of idea. The fount is open and, and it shall continue to flow in summer as in winter. In verse 9, the Lord will be king over all the earth on that, on that day, the Lord will be one and His name one. He establishes His king. He, he, he saves His people. He gives them the blessing, the living waters that they need to be alive spiritually to serve Him faithfully. And He is their king reigning over them. And in the rest of this chapter, we see the people are, are able to dwell in security. They have the security they're finally looking for, given to them. And the nations around them are plagued. <laughs> they're suffering and, and they're, they're enduring a plague that kind of looks like a zombie apocalypse kind of a, a scene. That's what everybody kind of goes to with this. But they're plagued and they're rotting away. But those who survive the plague of the nations will come and they will worship the Lord, or if they don't, they'll be cursed uh, like everyone else, everyone else. And in the end, those who come and worship the Lord will be called holy to the Lord. And the last verse says, there shall no longer be a traitor, some translations say Canaanite, in the house of the Lord of hosts 
that day. In other words, nobody's going to be a foreigner who is holy to the Lord that day. Everybody's going to get to come in, going to get to take of the fount of the, of the, of the life-giving stream that is available to them. Okay? <sighs> All right. That's a lot of information, isn't it? Woo! All right. So, Zechariah. Uh, that's the book of Zechariah as far as I understand it. I hope that helps you in your studies as you, as you study this book and other books. If there's any part of this that's confusing to you, come talk to me, email me, call me, whatever you want to do. Uh, you know, understand we're all imperfect. We all make mistakes. I may have missed something or I may have just uh, misread it or something like that. But that's the way I see it from a big picture point of view. It's not that difficult if we just stay in the big picture. When we get in the details, it gets a little harder, and I'll admit that. But from the big picture, we see God coming in, establishing His Son, uh, Jesus, as the branch who will be God with us, allow God to dwell in our midst. He will be a wonderful shepherd king over us and bring us all the spiritual blessings that were promised. And that's what we see ultimately happen in the New Testament. Throughout this, you see this throughout, that God is promising because the people have returned to Him that He's going to pour out these blessings and bring about the king that is going to help them... uh, dwell securely in the land, which is ultimately what they're wanting. Now let's step back and think about what this means to the people who are listening to this, okay, and how this applies to us. Notice, if you're an Israelite at that time, dwelling in Jerusalem, everything's destroyed around you, and you're supposed to go build this temple, what kind of message would that send to you? You know, I think we resemble them in our struggles against the nations. They've got all these nations oppressing them. The nations are raging and and plotting in vain to overthrow the Lord and His anointed. And and God laughs. This is in the bulletin. uh, Psalm 2. God laughs at them. He holds them in derision. And we we go through the same thing. You know, we're we're sitting here and, and... People are telling us not to believe what the Bible says and people are against the way that we understand Scriptures, the way that we study to learn what God's will is and we try to live by that. And they're telling us, you can't do that. You can't do this. You can't do that. And guess what? God is saying here, you can and you will because I've made a way for you to do that. And as we, as we are struggling, you know, we, we repent. And you remember chapter 7 through 8 where they're struggling and they're like, they're trying to figure out, are we supposed to fast for the Lord? I mean, how many of us have been like, am I supposed to stop doing this? Am I, what am I supposed to do or not do? And am I still saved if I made this mistake? You know, what's going on here? The people are understanding it's all about having the obedient heart that loves the Lord enough to love those around us to be serving and compassionate and caring about them. And God is just pouring out His blessings the whole time until we understand what it is He wants us to do on this earth. And so we resemble them in a number of ways. And the message of this book is amazing for us to understand that Jesus has come, He has has conquered the enemies against us, and He has made us into the mighty men who are able to stand against the enemies. He's made us like David, like God, like the angel of the Lord, able to go out and defeat those who stand against us. And He's refining us through the process as we're learning, we're becoming more and more like Him so that God is not ashamed to be our God. And we can be His people. What a beautiful picture this is. I love this book. Uh, now that I've understood what it's all about, I'm not scared of it anymore. I'm excited about it. And I hope that you are too. 
Uh, If you're partaking of the fountain that has been opened through Jesus, you remember in John 4, he's talking to the Samaritan woman, and and he says, you can have living waters. You, you, You come to me, I'll give you living water. And she says, what's this living water? Well, that's what Zechariah was talking about. It's life. It's spiritual life. You can be made alive. You can have a relationship with God. You can have all your iniquities thrown in that basket and taken far away, never to be seen again, forgiven of your sins to serve God faithfully. But the choice is yours. Are you going to be obedient? Are you going to bow in submission to the Lord? Are you going to follow Him and choose to live for Him and be refined by Him as you live your life? Or are you going to continue to rage against Him and try to overthrow Him? That's what we have to decide in our own lives and in our own hearts. The option is up to us. What are we going to do? Uh, If you know what you need to do and you want to make that change, please do that. Please come forward as we stand and as we stand.